What Mad Universe is part of the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. Content warning. Sex, rape, and never-nude witches. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. now watch closely the special effects are quite expensive a bass note sounds it is a deep vibrating chord that hints that the brass section may break in at any moment with a fanfare for the cosmos because the scene is the blackness of deep space with a few stars glittering like the dandruff on the shoulders of god then it comes into view overhead bigger than the biggest most unpleasantly armored star cruiser in the imagination of a three-ring filmmaker a turtle 10,000 miles long. It is Great Atuan, one of the rare astro-colonians from a universe where things are less as they are and more like people imagine them to be, and it carries on its meteor pox shell four giant elephants who bear on their enormous shoulders the great round wheel of the disc world. As a viewpoint swings around, the whole of the world can be seen by the light of its tiny orbiting sun. There are continents, archipelagos, seas, deserts, mountain ranges, and even a tiny central ice cap. The inhabitants of this place, it is obvious, won't have any truck with the global theories. Their world, bounded by an encircling ocean that falls forever into space in one long waterfall, is as round and flat as a geological pizza, although without any anchovies. A world like that, which exists only because the gods enjoy a joke, must be a place where magic can survive. And sex too, of course. Equal Rights, 1987, by Terry Pratchett. Hi, welcome to What Mad Universe. I am your host, Philip Rice, and with me as always is Adam Prosser. Hello. And joining us is Ng. Hello. Um, and today we're talking about um, Discworld, but uh, we're going to be talking specifically about the six Granny Weatherwax books, um, a, a series within a series. Uh, by Terry Pratchett, and we'll be right back after this. Weather Tokyo Fresh Podcast. I'm David. I'm Jordan. We're a comedy lifestyle podcast diving into the weird and interesting side of Japan. We often share stories about our lives in Japan, you know, and how you can avoid making the same mistakes. So if you want to take advice from two idiots who have been living here far too long, check out the Tokyo Fresh Podcast. Only on the Tokyo Beat Network. Okay, so we'd been wanting to do a Discworld episode for a while, and um, uh, I was uh, uh, reading a smattering from various series. I had read um, 
the uh, first two Discworld books in like my first year of university, but I sort of got distracted and didn't um, didn't go on from there. I I did enjoy them, but uh, and, and I, I know Rincewind isn't uh, the place that people say to start with, but I tried to start at the beginning and I was going to mm-hmm. read through all of them, and then I just didn't. Um, and so this seemed like an excuse to you know read a smattering of various series, but I realized I was I was sort of getting close to finishing the uh the original six Granny Weatherwax books. So that's the witches books but not the Tiffany Aching ones. Um mm-hmm. and uh I thought, you know, we could just break this up into smaller series. Like it would yeah. be a lot to talk about if overall on Discworld because it's right. it's a big topic to cover. Over forty uh, novels. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A- and on supplementary stuff. Um but I guess yeah. uh, we should talk start with the with an overview of what Discworld is. Yeah. Well, it's it, it is just to mention it is funny that like it, people pull it, you ask people like, "Oh, well, people are like, I'd like to read the Discworld books. What should I read?" And they like they pull out a flow chart yeah. and it, like it suits down from the ceiling and start tapping away. And it it's not that complicated. Like they're extremely accessible. In fact, almost every book is designed to be as accessible as possible. Yeah, every book, so, almost every book is designed that it can work as your first book in Discworld. Right. So yeah. pretty much read one that kind of sounds like it might have a fun premise, start with that one, and then mm-hmm. go back and read the ones in the sub-series that you, uh, that you thought were neat. Yeah. And I mean, it, it really is like... Um uh like it, it's it there there's a bit of a momentum with like characters because you care about the characters more like that might it might land harder if you've read a couple of books with them first uh but yeah otherwise it's there's very little reason to read them in a very specific order um like you uh philip i i did i wanted to start at the beginning so i started with uh, the color of magic uh which is like one of the weakest books he was definitely like just kind of getting himself started when i mean he wrote it's that. fine but it's not like yeah. what it would become no, it's it's not really. It's just like fantasy, but a bit wacky is kind of <laughs> how it works. Uh, usually with specific parodies of specific uh, things, basically. But yeah, anyway, sorry, you were going to talk about just the Discworld premise. I th- feel like a lot of people know Discworld at this point, but let's uh, just quickly go over it. Uh, Ing, how about you handle this? All your, right, the your, Discworld yeah. is a decades-long spanning uh, series of series taking place on the uh, disc, which, as the introduction said, is a flat world suspended on four cosmic elephants that ride atop the back of a great celestial turtle. And it is Terry Pratchett's magnum opus. It's pretty much a series of they're all fantasy uh, series, though it dips some into sci-fi, but always with the idea that the Discworld is a world that runs on the laws of magic uh, definitely more and sometimes science may get a chance to have a say if it's behaved (laughs) Um, and the setting is unique that each book is indeed intended to be a standalone, it has a clear beginning, middle, end and conclusion but everything that happens uh, stays happened and the setting has continued to grow up until Terry Pratchett's death, uh, during which he was still working on ideas for uh, entries into the Discworld series. Yeah, and I think it's the best-selling 
books in the UK, if I'm not mistaken. I yep, think they I actually. Think I don't Harry think Harry Potter, but maybe. Yeah. I, I think even Harry Potter has never topped I, it. I'm uh, gonna say I, I think it's a bit better than Harry Potter. It has <laughs> yeah, Terry Pratchett better. has a very good voice and a very good talent for both very uh, for poetic prose and also satirical humor that works very well yeah. without either actually undermining the other. Yeah, initially, you know, the one that uh, the uh, the reason I got into it, I think at a certain point people were getting into it because of uh, Douglas Adams, because he's got uh, some similarities to Douglas Adams in some way, dealing yes, more with definitely very influenced by Douglas Adams. The biggest way I think would be his clearest writing quirk and trademark, which is his liberal use of footnotes, mm. inspired you... by the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxies. Aside, where it will go into the titular book's uh, entry on a certain topic in the universe to basically give an explanation on what they're dealing with. Terry Pratchett will just have a footnote where the omniscient narrator will take you aside and explain something, and this indeed may also be a joke in itself, and the footnotes may lead to more footnotes. I think it's famous there's one page that has about a three-sentence paragraph and the rest is taken up by footnotes. <laughs> yep, much um, like as an example, and this isn't from the witches series. This is one I'm I'm currently in the middle of the um, uh, one of the watch books. Um, uh, it says uh, uh, the the first thief was uh, um, what was it? Fingers Mazda, um, who stole fire from the gods. He tried to fence it, but it was too hot. <laughs> and then, and then <laughs> another footnote saying he really got burned on that deal. <laughs> Yeah, footnotes within footnotes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, then like, uh, the one footnote in The Witches that stands out to me, because there's no purpose for it other than the narrator to make a joke, is that it talks about um, that one of the characters is upset because somebody explained to her the symbolic meaning behind witches riding brooms and maypoles. And then the footnote says, many people believe that these things are symbolic of uh, sex and penises, but this is a fallacy. <laughs> oh God, he wasn't. He wasn't super into puns normally. He's really, no, he's I, really into puns. It's just I often disagree. they're hidden more. It's just that what he's so proud of. It has to have a whole footnote just to explain it. <laughs> I disagree. There's puns all over the place. Like uh, a major, uh, a recurring character in the uh, witches series is a dwarf named Casananda who's the uh, dis-second greatest lover. Um, and he's Casanova. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because he's, he's a dwarf. Short, and he's <laughs> shorter that... than Casanova, so he's Casananda. <laughs> yeah. Is that guy was a pun? Anyway, not going to... Yeah, okay, fair enough. I'm just uh, not That absolutely counts as a was... pun. Okay, There's... fair enough. A, l- a lot of them are, are uh, hidden, and like when you realize what they are, you just groan and sort of... like you got to respect it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, so, I know. well, I do remember. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. So go ahead. Each go premise ahead. of the Discworld uh, typically goes on the idea it's picked one topic that it's going to be something uh, largely satirical about, but it's also going to be the theme of the story, and then the characters will go through that. There'll be a lot of jokes and some surprisingly emotionally moving poetic prose and insights into the human condition. Uh, and in the Discworld, there's sort of, uh, let me think, three or four main series. There's the Watch series, which is most popular, which is about the attempts by uh, largely a couple of 
of the least corrupt corrupt guardsmen in the city to turn the city guard into a from a corrupt gang into an actual police force. And then, you know, the idea of how to do an actual police force without all falling into all the ACAP problems. The yeah. <laughs> Wizard series, which is technically started with the Wizard with the first book, The Wizard Rincewind, who is a um Academically coward? ungifted uh, wizard and and proudly self-proclaimed coward. He is he meets the bare minimum of being a wizard, but he cannot cast any spells. Uh, and then that spins off into uh, Rincewind kind of falls into the wayside as it go as the rest of the wizard series largely focus the rest of the uh, higher faculty as they continue to basically be brilliant idiots bumbling their way through plots and arguing amongst themselves. Let's see, there's that. There is... The Death. Yes, the Death series, which follows Death, the anthropomorphization of mortality on the Discworld, who is a character that appears in nearly everyone. Whenever anybody dies or has a near-death experience, Death will show up. Um, and then there's the uh, Moist von Lipwig yes, books. Yes, the or, later ones yeah. are Moist von Lipwig, which follow a con man who is pressed into government service in exchange, in exchange for not being executed for his many crimes. And the last big one is the witches, which detail the adventures of the country hedge witches of the very small nation of Lancra and the surrounding areas around it, starting with Granny Weatherwax, who is a uh, sort of a consummate uh, crone and the most talented witch on the disc. Consummate crone, yes. yes. Uh, we should actually highlight here that there's technically the Tiffany Aching series, which are kind of a, the witches are involved, but it's a sort of a separate it, series. The it's the young adult Aking's series. Tiffany Aching's is the young adult series, and it is uh, very much a spin off of the witches. Right, yeah, yeah. but we read the first one of those, but not not all of them. Yeah, the Tiffany Aching's detail a uh, young girl, Tiffany Aching, in her uh, path and education in becoming a witch. And, yeah, and, and Granny Weatherwax appears in them. Yes, but, Granny uh, Weatherwax is not the main character, but appears as sort of a mentor figure to mm. various degrees. Right. Uh, the other big, and that's the one we're going to talk about today. To be yes. clear, we're going to talk about the witches series. And so, the other yeah. main characters of the witches series are uh, uh, Gifford Nanny Og, who is like the platonic very uh, horny. Yes, the platonic <laughs> ideal of everyone's favorite uh, grandmother. She's fat. She's jolly. She likes to smoke and drink. And as she said, she's had many husbands throughout her life. Some of them she was even married to. <laughs> and she's continued her sex life like well into her 80s. Um, and the original youngest member of the Kivert is Magracht uh, Garlic, who starts out as sort of a uh, loving parody of like new age hippie types there. And she increasingly comes into her own. And after she basically graduates her apprenticeship and becomes a full witch, she's replaced with the uh, witch-in-training of Agnes Knit, who is, fills the same role, but is kind of like for goth kids. Mm. 
Yeah. As as I recall them saying, it's like, yeah, the Agnes or, or Megrat are, you know, the virgin of the group. Uh, yes. You know, Nanny Agus, the mother of the group, and Granny Weatherwax is the other one of the group. Yes, because they are <laughs> oh, they're aware of the symbolism of the three witches, but also aware that it's not wise to draw attention to Granny Weatherwax, which one she fulfills. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and I mean, if I recall, Magrat ends up getting married, so she can't really be the virgin. Right. <laughs> the, yeah, the, the maiden, maiden, the, the maiden yeah. mother and crone. And there's a brief yeah. one when uh, Granny seems to have retired and uh, Nanny Og is very upset that that means that she would get a forced promotion to crone rather than mother. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, so Granny Weatherwax is very much a, I uh, believe the, the trope is um, good is not necessarily nice. Yes, she's a very stern woman, and very, and often very emotionally cold, and like very direct, and... Uh, and scary. S- yeah, scary, snarky, and biting, and very willing to be honest and not nice to someone. And I mean, she is the fairy tale witch in a lot of ways, except that she is, you know, on the side of the angel. She's always heroic, but yes. she's uh, could be scary like a Halloween witch. Like, yes, uh, and it's, not... there's an ongoing thing there that uh, both others and her and herself are worried that she would be tempted into becoming a genuinely evil, wicked witch because she would be very good at it. Hmm. Um, yeah, but it's it's a thing that her questioning that is what is part of what keeps her good. Yeah, effectively she's so stubborn she refuses to be evil. <laughs> nice. But but also that, you know, like um introspection is is something that that keeps you honest. Yeah. Right. There, er- well, she has she has the famous quote which uh you were going to probably recite, right? Uh uh Philip about uh the origins of sin. Oh yeah, that it's uh treating people like things. Right. And we say it's more complicated, and he says, "No, that's that's not more complicated. That's how it gets started. Is when you tra- start treating people like things. That's that's the beginning of sin, basically." Yeah. Which I always, a lot of people like that quote. That's a that's a good one. Okay. It's also the go ahead. Sorry. It's a good one. Granny gets a lot of uh, uh, good lines as she delivers something very poetic there. Yeah. The other thing I always, uh, uh, my friend Andrew Hickey, who does the five hundred. Uh, history of rock music and 500 songs whenever he had a blog whenever his blog went down for a while he'd put up a post that says i ain't dead right <laughs> which is uh, what... <laughs> with, yeah granny's big talent is that she can borrow which basically is astro projecting and then not quite possessing but riding along in the body and borrowing the senses of an animal and when she does this her body is basically comatose and it's been enough of an issue throughout her long career of people coming across her seemingly dead body that she now just has a placard she wears around her neck that just reads, I ain't it's dead. Yeah, because she's not, she's sort of not fully literate, too, is the other thing. Yeah, <laughs> it, well, she's against, she, she can read, she's literate against her, against her will, basically. <laughs> like, yeah. she, she hates books, she thinks they're really, like, <laughs> um... Yeah, she well, hates that act- books because they can't argue back. <laughs> <laughs> well, that kind of highlights, I think, what's interesting. Because for a while, when I was into the book series, I was always a bit like puzzled. Like, okay, what is the difference between witches and wizards? And I know they uh, they obviously uh, the first witches book is equal rights, uh, which is uh, R I T E S. Haha, uh, that's a pun, I suppose. Um, that. Uh, 
it's about a a a, 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 a a daughter who's born and she's the seventh daughter of a seventh son uh which is you to be a wizard you have to be the seventh son of a seventh son you don't have uh, it, it seemingly changes throughout the series you don't have to be but if you are you're basically granted a predisposition to be good at magic and destiny will push you towards being a wizard right and the but the se- the point here is i forget her name because she's not really a running character if i Ask. recall correctly Esque. Uh, she gets. I think she shows up again at some point. But like she's, um, her big thing is no. I want to be a wizard, not a witch. I yep. want to be a wizard, and uh, and that. Oh, and and they never like. F- to me, they never fully explained at the time what the difference was. Well, Ingle between being- does, does explain it, yeah. and part of it is that the witches are very practical, uh, and mm. comes from. Okay. Um. Hold on. Let it's me like back earthy. up. Yeah, so earthy versus head in the <laughs> stars sort of thing. Like uh, wizards are very like a lot of fire magic, a lot of um like crackling fingers and and um uh connecting with like the the cosmos and stuff and witches are more uh yeah, er- earthy and um um more uh, uh dealing with with the here and now and what is yeah. and nature and yeah so yeah. the big thing that i would say is so we have one word that's just like knowledge or skill but if you look like in greek philosophy that's breaking down in like many things is breaking down into several and they have sorry if i forget this wrong but there's um effectively three which is uh genus or genius which is you know natural talent technus which is your technical skills that you learn and mentis which is the skills that you are not technical but are practical and i would say that the difference is that with that wizards and witches both have genius they both have a natural talent for magic but wizards are technus you go to a university and you learn the elaborate runes and the math and the um actual physics of the disc to learn how to manipulate the elements there and witches are just you go out and practice stuff and you learn as you go. Right. And frequently uh, you do something and then you work backwards to figure out how to do it again. In the wizard series, it talks that the academic wizards brag that their big skill is that they know, is that they know how not to do magic, which isn't the right. same as just not knowing how to do not to do magic. It's knowing how to do magic and knowing when not to, and it's the sort of the a joke that it's seemingly lazy, but there is kind of an actual good explanation under the idea that it's good to have people who do have the skill, and also that they're uh, given enough discipline that they don't use it for everything. Yeah, exactly. Which is also do yes, that, which uh, is also believe too, yes. that the way, yeah. the sort of the difference is that oddly the witches tend to use magic a bit more because their magic tends to be very as subtle as possible, while wizards tend to be a big effect, and they mm-hmm. thus, uh, you know, uh, wizards prefer to brag that they can do amazing things and then hope that that's enough to get you to back down or something. Right. Where, <laughs> which, yeah. is, which is kind of mix their natural trickery and, like, sleight of hand and, predest- and prestidigitation with actual magic just to yeah. smooth things along. It's it's it, and I mean that is actually historically that's kind of it like the witch being the wise woman of the yeah. village who you'd go to for yeah, you know, things is, you actually needed like to yeah, get you, a how, potion for something to make you feel how better. Which is how the Discworld uh, treats it. There, the witches frequently 
are trained in at least first aid. Many of them are dedicated doctors or midwives or veterinarians in addition to knowing magic because they know stuff that's important for their community where the wizards have a vibe of being academics and nuclear physicists and uh, kind of computer engineers there where they will like make they make a lot of the commercially available magic for like the cities and that <laughs> that's both very popular and they say it works well enough that it almost fixes all the problems it causes <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and and i mean that actually of course the the wizards are tied to like science in the disc world it's just it's magic yeah, but it's, it's effectively they're treated like scientists they basically. effectively are scientists in a world where magically act where magic actually exists they are the ones that like go and explore okay but how does magic work and how can we make it more effective yeah which is always um, very interesting to me because there's a uh, like th- th- there's even in in the actual like fantasy tradition of like mythology and folklore and stuff there's the sort of the big bold like stories that are often tied with the religion they're often tied with the mythology of the of the world uh and like it's the 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 really elevated you know the odyssey and so forth of the bible or the king arthur stories versus the folklore which is the stuff people tell in their you know around the campfire which is a lot less but but also just the sense of like it's the I guess the magic of the proletariat versus the magic of the bourgeois, if you want to say that way. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's the, 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 the witches stuff is the stuff that grows in the cracks and that doesn't get a lot of attention called to it. And that isn't about reordering the universe. It's just about like keeping things running quietly. And it's the way, you know, it's what people would turn to if they didn't have access to the infrastructure as it were. Yeah. Frequently so think- there's times like when a rival witch or something challenges granny, Weatherwax, she will basically find a way to win the challenge without using magic because it's the simpler way to do it. And then when challenged that, and then if she's then, they then push it and say that she can't actually do magic, she will then pull out something like blowing something up with magic to, to demonstrate that she absolutely could and is just stunting on people. Mm-hmm. That the, Sorry, um, what were you going to... Headology what, is her yes, thing. Which is, yeah, headology. Uh, yeah, yeah, which is like folk psychology. Yeah. It's a blend of like folklore and psychology to effectively trick or give people a story from which they can feel better or start to uh effectively come up with some ritual that will lead them to feeling better about something. Like the definitive one that we get one time is that there's an old man who is terrified of death, so she just gives him a sh- a crossbow without any bolt and assures him that it's magic and that it can shoot death to keep him away. (laughs) And this doesn't do anything, and he'll basically just dry-click this gun at anybody who turns it, who comes up to his door in case they're death, but he's no but it gives him enough, like, sense of security that he's able to enjoy the days that he has left until death actually does come. And there is a (laughs) joke that when it comes, he fires this fake gun, and from death's point of view, an actual crossbow bolt does hit him, and he just goes, ow. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly there, there's a bit like her, her cures um almost always work but they're actually it, it's placebo effect like she yeah. she works on the the idea that um if you can make somebody think that it's going to work it will work yeah and she the, does that for um placebo and nocebo to win battles and stuff usually yeah the uh, Tiffany aching one has her deal with somebody who's basically having chest pains by telling him that there's a sacred river up in the mountains that he must drink from every day. 
And once pointed out that there's nothing magical about that water, she says, no, but going for a five-mile hike every day will really help him. <laughs> exactly. So Equal Rights has that basically a wizard passes on his remaining magic when he hears a family, a seventh son is about to have their seventh child and didn't bother to basically check the gender reveal and accidentally passes on his remaining magic to a daughter. So... Uh, it comes when she comes of age. Granny Weatherwax tries to uh, basically tutor her as a witch and find out she does not have the knack for witch kind of magic, but she does have the knack for wizard magic, and she's basically very kind of very firm and regressive in the gender roles too. But then starts questioning, well, who's to say that you can't have a lady wizard? We haven't had one before, but. She's clearly not good as a witch, so I'm going to take her to the university and demand that they that uh, she's their problem now. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it, it is good that they question, like, that is one of those things, and it was done from sort of a feminist right. perspective initially, of like, you know, oh, there's a sacred female power and all that stuff, and that does get into some problematic areas when you start saying, well, there's magic for women and magic for men, especially when you've got a real fantasy world. Um, and, like, right from the start, it's nice that Pratchett is kind of yeah, and, <laughs> throwing and a curveball back. Pratchett was definitely grew in views with that and introduced it more, and the last of the Tiffany Aching and last of the Witches books has a character that is basically a boy who wants to be a witch. So that the Witches uh, series comes full circle. It starts oh, with yeah, a, woman nice. who wa- a girl who wants to be a wizard, and ends that there's a character with a boy who wants to be a witch. Oh, okay. And that, is that also decides at the end of Equal Rights that um, um, the wizards uh, are, uh, aren't really doing things right, but Granny Weatherwax isn't either, so she wants to create a magic that's like a mix of the two. Yeah. Hmm. Which is interesting. Yeah. Like, that's, that's sort of like um, uh, questioning the idea of rigid gender roles is like in this series from the start. Right. Yeah, and later stuff in the wizard books have a few jokes about... Uh, ways there are wizards that are bending those roles too because it is uh normally and like traditionally strict all wizards are supposed to be men and all witches are supposed to be women and in the wizard academy ones where there is some hints that things aren't so rigid actually as rigid but i think a, a a major theme with uh, Pratchett was always just like, nobody really knows what they're doing, not really. Yeah, <laughs> like, there's that's... always gotta be, like, blurry lines and things, and that's frequently where there's uh, fun stuff. Like, one of the last books that he wrote ta- uh, has a whole aside about um, basically the borders between two countries, where there's t- where there's basically a town crossing two borders, and the people who are supposed to be part of, like, two rival countries have long inter- uh, married and have like a mixed culture and saying this is something that uh, governments really hate, which means it's probably a very good thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's his general uh, attitude towards uh, t- politics and and the thing. Um, you know, we can talk about it if we when we start doing the watch and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, the but watch there's definitely, goes a lot in yeah. the watch and the Lipwick ones there, which have characters overlapping, especially the. Uh, head of the main city in the setting, Ankh-Morpork, Pork, is a big character in both as the authority figure both mm-hmm. series have to answer to. So both wind up dealing with like political theory. Right. And I can't help but stress is... in a very fun way <laughs> and yeah. in a funny uh, way. 
and it's actually interesting because the witches series is just to keep it on that like that's very it's 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 keeps away from the political aspects of stuff as much as possible the second i think it's the second book weird sisters which is a parody of hamlet no sorry macbeth rather no um, it's both it's both well yeah well shakespeare in general oh. i guess but like specifically the the three uh witches from macbeth the, the they take nanny og and weatherwax and uh and uh Magrat take the roles of the the three witches in that, and um, but and they start they do meddle in politics in that one. That's like the only time they really do that, if I recall correctly. Yeah, because uh, um, they if they uh, it's said that if they establish a kingdom using magic, uh, like a if they set up uh, using their powers, then they'll have to maintain it using their powers, and that can only go wrong. So they have to sort of be more subtle about um, replacing a terrible king with a good one. Yeah. They, well, they they'd also, basically... in the course of that, they, they they throw the entire kingdom like ten years forward in time, if I recall correctly. Um, just beca- which is really a plot a plot point more than anything. But uh, just because he didn't want to skip over ten years, he just had them all like fast forward well, ten years. It's also meta because the witches realize that it's like okay, basically, an evil tyrant's become king. The actual heir apparent has been. Oh, whisked away. We all know how this story works. So in like ten years or so, he's going to come back, and uh, in like fifteen years, he's going to be able to come back, defeat his evil uncle, and take his crowd. And they're all just sitting. Kind of don't want to wait fifteen years under an evil king. <laughs> yeah. So they just do a very elaborate and very difficult spell where they selectively, basically, freeze their kingdom in time and pop forward fifteen years. So in hopes that the hero will be ready to come back and are. Uh, like slight spoiler, it's dis- they're disappointed and have to keep working with trying to. They they know what the story is supposed to be and are spending the whole story trying to push it along into where it's supposed to go, and it's just stubbornly refusing to. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. yeah, and that in this case, the um, the the young king was uh, raised by actors and like wants to, and, and there's a whole thing with a dwarf who's a based on Shakespeare. And he he runs the disc theater instead of the globe theater, which I always, right. which I thought yeah. was very funny. But um, um, yeah. and um, um, so the 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 supposed king to be doesn't want to do that. So they actually install a, a, the um, jester, um, who is Magrat's sort of, love interest throughout it. There and there's a running yeah. joke where people will, as a side point out, that it's like, yeah, it sounds good to be king, but when you look at the actual. Uh, difficulties in being a king of a small nation like uh, Lankra, it's more trouble than it's worth, so only a fool would actually want to be king. And they say um, it long enough that it becomes an ironic prophecy when it mm-hmm. turns out the uh, king's fool actually is the bastard son of the previous king, and thus is the rightful heir, and becomes <laughs> the proper king. Right. No, it's it's heavily implied that he's not actually related, and they just sort of made that up. It's unclear. It, yeah. it comes to the thing there is like, okay, anybody actually care enough to check this? We got a good ending. <laughs> yeah, right. It's also a note nod to King Lear as well. Yes. So yeah, all the Shakespeare stuff. Yeah, the um, the first several of the witches' books lean heavily on Shakespeare stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, uh, not so much witches abroad, but Lords and Ladies right. is definitely um, has a lot of. Um, Midsummer Night's right. Dream. Right, Witches Abroad is more on fairy tales, specifically Cinderella, because in that one, Magrat accidentally inherits the role of a fairy godmother and is terrible at it. 
So they go right. abroad to another con- uh, country to uh, first solve that issue of uh, who to pass on this mantle to. And then they find out that an evil, an actual evil wicked witch is using fairy tales as basically the templates for her evil scheme and has set up uh, a, a scenario with the Cinderella story to take over a, a country and they wind up having to thwart her. Yeah, and the country's based on Louisiana? Yeah, it's based on New Orleans. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Witches Abroad right. is a very fun one and introduces the idea of narrativium, which is great which is a theory Granny Weatherwax subscribes to, which is the belief that stories in and of themselves are alive and look for mortal figures that fulfill archetypes, and then they latch onto them parasitically and like push people towards fulfilling the stories. I also got vibes from that book, it, maybe not directly, but uh, like it, it's sort of lampooning Disneyland. Yes! It's like yeah. the evil fairy godmother is like creating a, the perfect fairy tale kingdom, and like you know, it's like the... Um, that episode of the Twilight Zone with the psychic kid, where it's like everybody yeah. has to think happy thoughts all the time, and and yeah. uh, like the the shopkeeper has to be fat and jolly, and if he's ever not jolly, he'll be you know. Yeah, and then it has Granny Weatherwreck's response to that is that you can't fight the can't necessarily fight the story, but if you can find a good place to position yourself, you can pivot it and then spit it into a different story, which becomes a mm. meta thing that like. Granny's Weatherwax magic is almost like a metafictional thing that she wins against the other witch because she's able to shift the genre into a subversion of fairy tales. And that and this is also the book where we get Casanova, the parody of Casanova. <laughs> yeah, and he, he's a, a recurring character in the in these ones. He's a lot of fun. Yeah, and he immediately... He's also a highwayman, and a, a, he has a, a card which has, like... Um, renowned liar and stuff on it yeah and when people always ask is that true are you a renowned liar no (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) how do you answer that exactly your brain explains and he immediately uh falls hard for granny weather uh not for granny for (laughs) nanny og and spends uh two to three books wooing her So, like, going ahead to Lord and Ladies, uh, which is actually another one I don't know if I read. Uh, yeah, the ones... Lord and Ladies is very much a take on Midsummer's Night Dream. That's a, sort of the plot there, and it introduces the Discworld's concept of elves, where Terry Pratchett wanted to intentionally go back to, like, pre-Tolkien views on elves, and establish mm-hmm. that actually most people in the Discworld, when they think elves... They think of Tolkien elves, but that's not really what elves are. Elves actually are interdimensionally, interdimensional aliens that are sort of psychic parasites. Oh, I, I got a quote here from, from this yeah. book. and I, I think It's a really I, good I, one. Yeah. Elves are wonderful. They, pro- they provoke wonder. Elves are marvelous. They cause marvels. Elves are fantastic. They create fantasies. Elves are glamorous. They project glamour. Elves are enchanting. They weave enchantment. Elves are terrific. They beget terror. The thing about the about words uh, is that meanings can twist just like a snake. If you want to find snakes, look for them behind words that have changed their meaning. No one ever says elves are nice. Elves are bad. <laughs> yeah, and it yeah. goes with a very much of like the elves from Midsummer Night's Dream and sort of a uh, almost a horror take on it to where they're described as like almost pirate raiders. They come into a town and just take... Uh, loot and slaves and then go back into the fairy world and peace out. Mm-hmm. And, and they also um, 
and this isn't so much in Lord, Lords and Ladies, but they appear again in, in the first Tiffany Aching, and the idea that they actually lack imagination. Yeah. Like, their world is, like, barren uh, if if they don't uh, loot from other realities and, like, take images and, and shapes and things, um, which is an, an interesting, like, very different from, say, uh, we, we did an episode on Lud in the Mist, which, uh, like a lot of... Uh, stories that deal with fairyland have it as like a uh, the font of creativity. While in this case, um, it's like a parasitic pocket dimension where there's no creativity and they have to leech it off of other people, which is interesting. Yeah. Like they're both like um, takes on on fairyland as like a, a part of like an, the old religion or you know. Uh, mm-hmm. pagan stuff, but sort of looking at it from different angles. And the elves and fairies in Discworld, like, they have very powerful glamours. They can make themselves appear to be, like, ungodly beautiful, and to the point where people start feeling, like, absolutely depressed because by comparison they feel like shit. <laughs> but it it also has the thing that their real forms aren't like that. It's just there's so much magic that people's perception actually changes their physical appearance like it has without the with if they don't have like the glamour or somebody to trick into seeing them beautiful they actually kind of resemble uh gray aliens and that they're very withered and very weak and they're only strong when they're able to convince somebody that 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 they're stronger than them and there's Um, also uh the um the elf queen is is uh uh the, the villain of the story, but there's also an elf king who sort of represents like um, the old uh, pagan um, like, you know, the the long man, you know, the giant um, the, the, Yeah, he's I, portrayed I say Cornwall much, giant? Anyway. He's yeah. portrayed very much like Pan and ancient fertility gods, like they describe right. him as like having uh, antlers like uh, Karanonos the uh, uh, pagan like god of the wilderness and like seemingly having like bestial and possibly like cloven feet like that and mm-hmm. uh, from the innuendo when he stands up is very nude and very endowed <laughs> <laughs> and red and mad online yes uh, <laughs> yeah exactly the, the so naturally the he's well he's well familiar with Grant, with uh, nanny og too <laughs> <laughs> of course do the witches uh, like uh like do they do they frolic around uh, him at night, naked or whatever? Is that a no, thing? No, the or do they get... uh, tempting, basically, young witches to do that is how they try to sneak into the world. Because if they can get people to dance around the standing stones, which uh, previous generations of uh, witches, or it's actually implied that it might be like mages before wizards and witches split off, had assembled like Stonehenge areas around places where reality was weak and thus elves could enter, and these stones are made of magnemite. So hmm. they form a barrier that elves can't cross. But So they, if they can try to like psychically convince and entice like people to do like the dancing r- rituals around them, they can go, their psychic influence to the world can go stronger, and then maybe they can start convincing people to tear the stones down. Right. It's definitely a thing of uh, Pratchett's thing of like it's how much you're influenced by 
belief in things as we've been discussing like yeah. that's that's a recurring theme not just it sounds like the witches really hit it yeah hard, belief, but it's... uh it said that reality is a lot thinner in the discworld universe than ours so people's beliefs and collective mythology has a has a more uh direct and noticeable impact hmm. yeah um uh, we I guess we'll talk about gods in a, a more in depth in a different Discworld episode. Yeah. Um, but um, the gods on Discworld are uh, powered by by uh, belief by by mortals. Um, like they they do. Uh, if nobody believes in them, they wither into into just loose spirits floating around. Yeah. Like they become the very small and very pathetic. The closest thing to death that something that can't die can ha- get to. Right. Yeah. And uh yeah, there's a, a running bit where uh, uh Granny Weatherwax will say she doesn't believe in gods and somebody will point out Well gods obviously exist. Well, of course they exist, but there's no need to encourage them. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> um well, let's uh, move on a bit. Uh, did you want to say anything about Masquerade before we get oh, yes. um, to Carpe Jug- It's Jugular? a fun one, but I don't really have much to say. It's a Phantom of the Opera parody. It's got uh, also right. nods to uh, um, musical theater, a lot of Andrew Lloyd Webber jokes. Wait, hold right. on. I'm thinking, does Carpe Jungium happen before or after Masquerade? It's after. It's the last okay. one. Okay, yes, you're right. Yeah. Right. Uh, I know... I, I, the main thing I remember about Masquerade is that uh, I believe Agnes Nitt is kind of takes yes. over as the main character in that uh, one. But, uh, yeah, in, she's in, introduced in Lords and Ladies. Yeah, she's introduced in Lords and Ladies as one of the uh, young witches that thinks they know better than the older ones and are under the influence of the fairies from there. But she's apparently the most reasonable of that uh, gener- of that generation of I guess like millennial uh, witches. So. Um, uh, Granny and Nanny take note of her, thinking that, yeah, she's somebody that would be good to train up later on. Mm. And then in Masquerade, she's moved into the city to use her talent for singing to try to become an opera singer, and the witches follow her, uh, both to, you know, get her to be an apprentice, and because of a comedy plot that uh, Nanny Og published a cookbook and used Granny Weatherwax's name and the cookbook is apparently very popular but uh basically borderline pornographic in its innuendo and granny weatherwax is very angry that her name's been associated with it <laughs> yeah uh granny weatherwax is um uh very uh i guess i, I don't want to say socially conservative but like um uh very repressed sexually. I wouldn't even <laughs> say it's repressed. I think Nanny Weatherwax kind of does fit with being a canonically ace character. She has had, like, romance... She It's revealed that she did have romances in the past there, but just... And there was somebody who was basically her true love, to which she would have married and settled down with, but that didn't work out, and after that, she's just ha- she has had no interest in romance and no interest in sex. It's not part of her life. Yeah, it, it's actually she's able to tame a unicorn. That's a plot point yeah. because she's never had sex. Yeah. yeah. But I also think you could argue uh, Weatherwax is like she likes having a mystique around her and she likes being like distanced from people as well. So that that tracks with it as well. Like just the idea she doesn't want <laughs> she doesn't want people, uh, you know, thinking of her as a mere mortal, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
and she she wears like it, there's a joke that uh, she wears uh, many layers of clothes. She she's aware that somewhere underneath there's a naked body, but uh, that doesn't mean she approves of yeah, it. Yeah, she's effectively never nude. Um, <laughs> but then nice. it has a good punchline where when they get into the city, uh, Granny from her previous time uh, visiting the academy knows a good place to stay, and it turns out to be a brothel because when. Uh, Granny was there, she uh, uh, mistakenly thought it was just a regular inn and stayed there, but made friends with all the sex workers and uh, did a lot of uh, uh, basically doctoring work for them. So she gets to uh, really chide uh, Nanny for, despite being more libertine, for being the one scandalized at sex workers, while she's very, where she gets to Mm. be the forward-thinking sex-positive one for a change. (laughs) Nice. Uh, um, so, is Masquerade also the one? Sorry, uh, is that the one where they have the cat uh, change? That was in Witches Abroad, wasn't it? Where the cat changes into a human? Yeah, the first um, time it happens a few it, times. The, I believe it uh, does. Might happen in Masquerade too. Uh, in Witches does, Abroad, yes. for plot for plot reasons, they wind up effectively taking Nanny Ox's cat, um, Grebo. Grebo who's like a scarred, fighting. Uh, keeps describing as a rapist cat. Yes, it's just like uh, the platonic ideal of like that awful cat that, of course, the old lady that owns it loves. It treats like a little angel, um, right. but is like the scarred up like uh, alpha tomcat of his area. They effectively use magic to induce uh, lycanthropy into him, but turn him into a werehuman. Right. So there's uh, this is done to infiltrate a fancy uh, ball in witches abroad, but then it turns out that the magic kind of once you do something it's hard to justify to the universe it shouldn't happen again so Grebo basically finds that he can turn into a human as a defense mechanism when he's scared Um, okay so moving on to Carpe Carpe Joculum this is the uh, actually the first one of the witches books I read not the first Discworld but uh, I I wasn't going to be like I said I wasn't going to be reading all of the Discworld books but then I decided "Eh, I could um so, uh, Carpe Jugulum uh, is the one about vampires, and that's why I started with it. Um, uh, I, I found this a lot of fun. Um, uh, the sort of parody of, of vampire tropes. I, I like the idea of, um, um, you, you know, the the thing in vampire movies where, like, there's, there's cross-shaped things everywhere and, like, easily open... Uh, um, uh, drapes so that the sunlight can get in and stuff and it, it's it, in this book that that's uh, because vampires live so long and they, they come back from the dead so easily that uh, they're basically just giving humans a fighting chance this is just them being sporting keeps things, uh, but keeps there's things a new breed of vampires his, his um, uh, offspring who are like um, we're going to drink are... wine yeah he... we're gonna... so the villains of the series are basically the cinema sins of vampires that start coming out and questioning, well, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> and try to, like, logic themselves into being better vampires. And because of that, they basically invent, like, vampire capitalism slash proto-fascism, because they then go on a campaign to remove all the fantastical elements of the disc because they're too silly. And only have, like, proper serious vampires there and remove the silly things about them. Hmm. 
But there's and, also a running bit where, like, the the younger vampires are like, um, what they consider cool is like changing your name from a you know boring name like uh, hieroglyphica to something like uh, um, Alice or Wendy, <laughs> and uh, uh, pretending to be charters accountants and um, they like keep keep a, like a snifter of wine you know around their neck as like a symbol of like I could drink wine. Yeah, that's like a it, so it's a, it's a reverse goths. Is what yes, you're saying. and here's, exactly. Here's the thing: this book came out. At, about I think ten to eleven years before it, this does kind of feel like a parody of like the very straight-laced vampires in Twilight. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing, but that, also I mean and I also think that being you know the young vampires are the ones that you know kind of dress as like Mormon youths to be rebellious <laughs> against their goth parents. <laughs> I mean, there's a well, bit that, of that like Anne Rice stuff. Yeah, yeah I was yeah. going to say Anne Rice has like the whole idea of well, vampires have to be cool and edgy, and we can't do the cheesy Dracula vampires anymore. Has been a thing for a while now yeah. that where it's like fighting very hard to be cool and, and badass. But um, yeah, and and it's the larger story. It's funny because that's a recurring thing with Pratchett too. Like uh, the auditors in I believe Hogfather. They're called the auditors, right? The ones who, who yeah, again, they they want reality to be very yeah, normal and not thing, silly. One of the main effectively Lovecraftian threats to the disc are the auditors of reality that are basically the embodiment of law and logic, of order and logic, and they're very annoyed that their perception of the perfect universe of uh, basically cosmic bodies orbiting around each other and atoms uh, exchanging electrons is being muddied up by all this consciousness. Um, but so that's a that it's you can tell where Pratchett's <laughs> things things were that kind of made Pratchett a little uh, <laughs> a little annoyed <laughs> in terms of his critics and people who co- commented on his work, but also probably just fantasy in general. Yeah, but um, I uh, the other thing that the vampires are somewhat undermined there by their servant Igor, who is the Platonic ideal of the hunchback servant. Uh, that serves a bad scientist or a vampire. And as it turns out on the Discworld, Igors are a... It's not clear whether they're a separate species, but they are definitely a separate ethnicity and culture. And They're, they're all named Igor. Yes, their culture is based around being a servant to a vampire right. or a werewolf or a mad scientist and doing the mad science and henchmen stuff for them. And they love making things creepy and gothic and... Uh, they enjoy basically they're all talented surgeons so they're all also basically Frankenstein monsters because they just swap body parts and attach new ones to them yeah yeah and it has as we meet other Igors which can be distinguished all Igors have the same name they all seem to know which one each other and you are talking about and they're like, like Barbies and Kens in the yeah, Barbie like, movie and their distinguishing features are their patterns of scars and what body parts they have because very frequently they have like more than five fingers on one hand because they'll just give themselves extra thumbs or fingers to make work easier <laughs> and they give themselves redundant organs and he's yeah. been in the family for generations parts of them anyway yep <laughs> yeah well i know they and i know the igors play a bigger role in some of the later books as well yep. like monstrous regiment and so forth yeah. so it's, and it's where it kind of later books over, but... also established the female members of the tribe are all named igorina and look like <laughs> And despite having the same aesthetic, are tend to be seen as very attractive, and basically look like the uh, like Frankenstein's bride sort of deal. 
I also liked, uh, uh, yeah, it's it's a watch book, uh, but just as an aside, I did like that uh, at one point they talk about how the vampires are the masters of genealogy in the disc because they're like, they're literally cult cultivating humans it's like they're the the as animal husbandry people yeah. of yeah. except they're vampires yeah the villain of one of the watch books is a uh is a vampire who's been breeding generations of humans uh subtly by being yeah the nobility by being um the genealogist and he like deals with the heraldry and stuff and he's sort of subtly putting this person along with this person to breed them right like, like a, a person breeds a dog is like a hobby mm-hmm. but also well in this case it's their it's their sorry in this case it's their food right uh yeah, so it's yeah. like he's, it's the you know they're doing it to get delicious tasting humans basically yes. he, as far as i can tell he claims <laughs> he no longer drinks human blood but he also yeah. is a villain so yeah, yeah. exactly and, and um and does eat that one story that the plot the was around because uh the potential king was in love with a werewolf, and like that was gross. Mm-hmm. Yeah, werewolves are like beneath him. Yes, and it so is. he wanted to like orchestrate all this stuff to to make sure you know somebody else ascended to the throne. Yeah, it is established that like many things, werewolves and vampires see themselves as enemies. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, so yeah, that's the, the first round of Discworld. We'll be uh, back for more Discworld at some point in the future. Um, we'll be covering the watch next since I've read the most number of those out of, yeah. Right, but that'll be a few months off probably. Yeah. Um, so uh, thanks again for having Ing. I know you've, you're you're our foremost expert that we're aware of on the, on the Discworld books, and I know uh, it's always fun to talk about them with you. Thanks for uh, coming on the show. Oh, thank you. And Good they're to- great. I highly recommend all of them. Yeah. Well, our morphogenic fields are reasserting us into our natural cat forms, so it's time to close this episode of What Mad Universe. We've been Vampire Count Philip Rice, Fairy King Adam Prosser, and Ing, the disc's second greatest lover. Just a reminder, we both have a Patreon, which helps pay for hosting costs and whatnot. And if you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, illustrations, comics, among other things. Just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, 1L, or Adam Prosser, 2S's, or what-mad-universe.pinecast.co for the links. You can also follow us on Blue Sky at whatmaduniverse.bluesky.social, or Prankster36 for Adam, or Spear Havoc with an F for me. So until next time, remember to never treat people as things.